Now what I was going to say to third year students is that they probably remember me from having taken logic last year. So I taught them in their second year logic. I don't know whether I'll be teaching you logic um, in, your, in this year, but last year I taught them logic. And so I was going to tell them that um, uh, this, you know, not to be worried, this isn't as terrifying as logic, but in some ways maybe it's more terrifying than logic because um, in a real sense, if the people, some of the writers in this book after philosophy are right, then um, this, this course means that um, you don't exist in some point, or at least in the way that you thought about yourself, or a lot of people think about themselves until now. So a lot of this book is about the death of the subject, and the end of the subject, at least as we understand the subject to be. So that could be pretty terrifying, it could cause you to have to rethink your entire worldview, your entire notion of self. And um, that's, I think, what the authors are trying to get people to do, at least some of them. So, uh, yeah, let's just press on into the course. So I'm going to give an introduction to this book, After Philosophy, edited by Baines, Bowman, and McCarthy. Uh, and I'm, my introduction will follow closely their introduction. And since you haven't read that, then that's not such a terrible loss. It's not going to be repeating uh, material right now. Um, you can think of the essays in this book as a response, or you actually, in a way, you can think of a lot of philosophy um, done now, and it's been uh, being done for the last 50 years, at least. You can think of that philosophy as responding to a crisis, and you can distinguish maybe philosophy, put philosophy into two camps. Is it pre-critical or post-critical? Is it before this crisis appeared in intellectual thinking, or has it, uh, is it somehow after that crisis and taking into account in the way that it proceeds the existence of that crisis? And you can think of Immanuel Kant as the figure that really brought to, first brought to a head this crisis, a crisis within philosophy itself about reason itself, about the subject that is doing philosophy, and in, in a way, you can think of that crisis as arising out of trying to apply the methods of philosophy to philosophy itself. And so you can think of previous philosophers. I don't, when I say pre and post, I don't mean temporally the ones that existed before Kant and the ones that existed after Kant. Because it's possible to be a philosopher after Kant and proceed completely as if the crisis doesn't exist. You just don't take into account that crisis. You don't read the other post-critical philosophers you just continue on in a common sense way, in a naive way. And it's possible that some of the writers before Kant anticipated this crisis and saw what was coming and maybe didn't uh, make it as explicit as Kant did. But nevertheless, it could be thought of as anticipating this crisis. So here I've just drawn this kind of random diagram. It doesn't, the actual left-right position of the philosophers doesn't matter too much. Um, but it's just to give you an idea that maybe you can think of, after you are aware of this crisis, of course you can think of uh, thinkers, not just philosophers, but perhaps the Darwinian movement or the evolutionary way of understanding themselves, or what of, of ourselves, or, or the Freudian way of understanding ourselves, or even Marxist way. You can think of these thinkers and intellectual movements as somehow owing their starting point or owing the uh, their 
the issues that they take as central to the kind of crisis that was provoking Kant. And also you can think of some of these philosophers that were temporally before Kant as nevertheless anticipating some of the problems or issues that Kant was going to raise. Like Hume is a very good example of a philosopher who saw some disconnect, some problem in our conception of ourselves as purely rational beings. He had uh, encountered this difficulty of trying to understand ourselves as purely rational and yet also be being an empiricist or naturalistic philosopher. So there's a naturalistic conception of ourselves and then there's a rationalist conception of ourselves and they didn't quite fit together. And you find this fragment, fragmentation, in several aspects of Hume's philosophy. For instance, he had a notion of causation. He had two notions of causation. One that seemed to be naturalistic and uh, one that was more uh, rationalist and imposed from uh, the subject. So this is just meant to be an idea of, well, give it, this diagram is meant to give you an idea of how, if you have this concept of this crisis in philosophy, it allows you to reevaluate a lot of the philosophy before and after Kant in a different way. And we'll go into some of those ways that philosophy can be reevaluated. Re and we'll go into what the crisis is. But I'll just say one more thing before leaving this diagram. You can, if you know, I don't know how much you know about the history of. Uh, traditional Western music, like the classical repertoire of music, like uh, artists, not only Bach and Beethoven and Brahms, but then moving forward maybe to um, uh, Wagner, um, maybe moving towards Mahler, and then afterwards maybe Stravinsky and Schoenberg and modernist composers. Well, even if you don't, I'll just make a remark here that this crisis wasn't just occurring in philosophy. There are analogous crises that were occurring in other aspects of, of culture in the West at this time. Rather right, right, roughly at this time, it's very rough. So you, I, I'm not going to sketch it out for you, but you could find a similar kind of um, process going on in painting and maybe in other forms of culture and intellect. But just to give you a musical example, you can think of Kant Kant as the Mahler of philosophy. And when I say that, he's the Gustav Mahler of philosophy. When I say that, I'm borrowing a lot from an analysis that influenced me at an early age um, by Leonard Bernstein about uh, music and history of music and his musicology. And he thought, I think, that, uh, that Mahler was the central figure. And you could say that Mahler raised the crisis in music, in Western music. Um, maybe not, maybe I'm getting Bernstein wrong um, a little bit, but the idea was that before Mahler, you had people proceeding in the standard Western approach to music, classical repertoire music, which was functional harmony. There were certain rules that you followed in order to make a piece of classically acceptable Western music. When I say classical, I don't just mean the classical period. I'm including Baroque, and I'm including the before them, and I'm including the romantics after them. Um, but there were these certain set of rules. I, I can't teach you, you know, a music theory course right now, but uh, there's this idea that certain chords follow after other chords, and certain things have to be done by the time you reach the end of a phrase or the end of a movement or something like that. And um, at first, maybe they were quite simplistic, drawing out of, uh, from what I know, the um, chant music in churches, um, but uh, as time went on, these rules began to be 
elaborated, and they weren't written down anywhere, just people had a sense of the style. I mean, eventually people came to write them down, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, that there was a law that you had to use these. Things. Although, although even in the church, uh, when they, you know, they had outlawed, in a way, certain uh, intervals and melodies, that you couldn't use this interval. Da, da. You weren't supposed to use that interval on a melody. That's, that's the, the triton, the diabolus and musica, the devil in the music that you weren't allowed to use. Um, that's why it sounds so scary, right? Because I told you to be terrified. Um, you know, if I sing anymore, you probably get more terrified. But um, especially with this cold that I have, which I apologize. Um, so there were certain rules, and the idea is that the best music didn't just slavishly follow these rules, but somehow found a way around them, or found a way to be consistent with the general functional harmony approach, but nevertheless find new ways of of using those constraints in, in uh, to create make a creative piece of music, um, and then you can think that with Wagner and then with Mahler, this idea of stretching these rules and following them uh, to some extent, but uh, in a way that violated their spirit, um, that that reached its the breaking point. So um, I don't have any musical examples here. This isn't a musicology course, but you just have to take my word for it or Bernstein's word for it that. Uh, with Wagner and Mahler, you've got these, um, just to give one example, in, in Western classical Western music, the idea is that a uh, typical way to end a phrase is you have, uh, see if I get this right, um, I think it's uh, suspension, tension, and release, or something like that. So you have some notes that, um, that set up, a, maybe it's tension, suspension, and release. Anyway, the point is that you have roughly some notes which kind of don't go together, but one of them, one of those notes is one step away from the notes going together and sounding right together. So you would, right before the end of a phrase, you would insert that to add a little tension and then resolve it so that, ah, good, we're back, that's, that, that error has been corrected, that, that uh, tension, that fear that we might not get to, the chord we want to get to, is gone, and now we're happy and resolved we're home. Well, with Wagner and Mahler, this, uh, this tension was stretched to unimaginable, well, previously unimaginable lengths. So in um, the Liebestod from uh, Tristan and Isolde of Wagner's, or in uh, certain symphonies of Mahler's, you find this tension being held over measure, bar after bar, for maybe even minutes at a time now, not just a brief passing tension, but for a minute you're waiting, you're waiting with this yearning to reach this uh, resolved key. So this is an example of the rules being stretched to their limit. And, and after Mahler, composers thought, well, what can we do now? We've taken this formal system to its limit, and now it's just, there's nothing we can do with music that is still within this framework. And so because of other things that were happening at the time, other crises, maybe in a geopolitical sense, wars, world war, um, maybe uh, movements that were occurring in, in the arts and in philosophy, you had composers after Mahler saying, well, if we're going to do anything new, if we're going to take the next step in music, um, it's got to be radically different. And so they threw away the rules of functional harmony, and you have Schoenberg coming in and wiping the desk clean throwing everything on the floor and saying, we're going to start out completely with a completely new music, and I'm going to um, hear the rules. And to listen to this music, 
is very disturbing and alienating because it doesn't sound like anything you've heard before. It isn't based on our intuitive conception of what sounds beautiful. It isn't based on the central tradition. But in a way, it's a complete break with what went before. And, um, and to write music now in the conservatory that doesn't, isn't aware of that break and doesn't somehow respond to it, you don't have to repeat it anymore. You can make stuff that sounds kind of like functional harmony, but it to just be an unreconstructed uh, Baroque composer now, or uh, to write music like Sibelius now, would be considered, you're irrelevant, you're as irrelevant as a philosopher writing now who doesn't take into account the crisis that can't raise. So that's a long, a long extended metaphor, maybe it's more than a metaphor, but a long extended parallel example to give you think about this. But I just wanted to give you an idea that this is a deep issue and it's spanning more than philosophy. Although there are some, we'll get into just the these particular issues that are that come out of the philosophical crisis. Okay. The disputes that generate this crisis for the uh, editors of this book and for many of the writers in the book. Um, the disputes there are, there are four, I believe, <laughs> um, and so the, the introduction to this book classifies the papers and the positions and the, and the question, the crisis in philosophy, according to these four different disputes. So they, all of these four disputes will have a pre and a post view that are being contrasted with itself, pre-critical, post-critical. So I won't have time to go through and explain all these, but just to give you a rough idea of what's what's going on here on the. It, with respect to reason, what is it to reason? What is it to conduct philosophy? What is it to, you know, we consider philosophy to be somehow more connected with reason than just other writings. There's something special about reason to philosophy, uh, about reason in philosophy. Well, the pre-critical view saw reason producing, if you, the, the result, the products of reason are necessarily true. Um, they hold universally. They can be known independently of experience. Um, they can be known as certainty. They don't change over time. They, um, each proposition it has a unity and um, has a kind of, um, uh, all, all the propositions are of the same kind uh, that can be established through reason. Um, there's one method uh, that you can use uh, to produce reason and uh, all of the propositions that you uh, come to, uh, that you produce through reason are part of one single worldview. And you start with uh, a given that's self-evident, the basic axioms and principles that can't be questioned uh, without uh, incoherence, and from them you derive uh, the, the products of reason, theorems, conclusions. And there's no sense in which these conclusions are tentative or, or dependent on something else. You started with the self-evident given, then, and you use these methods that are guaranteed to always produce truth, then your conclusions are without exception or condition. Now the post view rejects all of those, as you can see. The post view says, no, actually reason uh, produces, uh, the products of reasons are contingent. They are partially true by convention. They're dependent on us for their truth in some, to some extent. Um, there are many different ways of uh, seeing the world and um, they don't necessarily fit together with each other well. And whether or not something is true depends on the context in which it's being considered. Um, not all reasoning is done independently of empirical investigation, but actual observation of the world can affect 
philosophical reasoning. It isn't just a, fallow, um, a, a certain enterprise, but some of them are products of reasons. Reason might be found to be incorrect later. So there's a historical aspect. What might be true now might turn out to be not, not true later or not reasonable later. And it's uh, cultural um, variations also take place. So something might be true relative to one culture and not another. So because of this, we don't necessarily have a unity of all the different products of reason. We might have um, maybe the proposition can't capture all the products of reason. Maybe we have um, skills and intuitions and beliefs and uh, we have visual products of reason perhaps. These all might be have very different forms, not just the single linguistic form of the proposition. And I've already mentioned that this fragmentation has a view. Um, you don't necessarily start with a like, self-evident given, but rather there's always a process of interpretation going on that's open to being questioned um, and always involves the subject partially creating um, what is taken to be uh, the world. And of course, this will mean a rejection of any absolute notion of truth. The second dispute, all of these disputes are going to be interrelated, but they, they, it's the same crisis in a way. Um, perhaps, but uh, the crisis expresses itself, expresses itself in different ways. We saw how it expressed itself with respect to reason, but also there's a crisis. As I warned you, there's a threat to the subject, to the self, who we are. So the pre-critical view is that the subject is sovereign. It's the ultimate authority about itself. It's rational. It's essentially rational um, to understand the subject. You have to understand the subject is uh, only in engaging in reason. And it's atomistic. There are um, what facts there are true about. I can either believe that P or not believe that P. And whether or not I believe that P is independent of whether I also believe Q, R, and S. So the contents of, of, the, of the subject's mind are have meaning independently of their connection to other things. The subject is autonomous. Oh, actually, sorry, I think this atomistic point might be better understood as relationship between subjects and other subjects. Um, so maybe my existence as a subject is independent of all, all of the subjects in the world. Uh, it, it, I'm not partially constituted by the, the things in my environment, and I'm not partially constituted by the people around me. Um, I am an, an atom, an, indi an individual entity that can be there or not be there. Um, the subject is autonomous, similar point about atomism, independent of the world around me. Sure, I need to eat some food, and I'm so dependent on the world in that way, but it's term as being a subject, it doesn't matter whether there are other people around who are believers or have beliefs or desires or whatever. My existence as a conscious, sovereign self um, proceeds independently of what other people are doing or what they believe. Um, the subject can be understood as disengaged from the world. Um, even if I'm not engaging in any activity, I can still be a subject. I can still have thoughts and reason rationally. Um, I can question even the relevance of the body to my existence as a subject. I'm a pre-critical view. I can conceive of myself existing, like Descartes spoke to I can conceive of myself existing as a pure, rational being that doesn't have a body. Of course, I do actually have a body, but that's not essential to who I am as a subject, according to this pre-critical view. The self is transparent to itself. 
Uh, that is, if I have any beliefs, I know what they are. If I have any desires, I know that I have these desires. Um, and uh, I can control them. Uh, the self is conceptual. Um, that is, there aren't any aspects of the self that can't be known in this conceptual way to myself. Um, so in some sense, it's not only that everything that is there can be known to me, but also um, there aren't any things, yeah, there aren't any, it's the other side of that point, there aren't any things that can't be known to me, and since my knowledge is uh, this rational, uh, propositional kind of knowledge, all aspects of myself are, are conceptualizable. Conscious, consciousness is the, the light, the inner, the, the subject just is, the existence of consciousness in the world, and uh, there aren't any aspects of the subject that um, aren't illuminated in that sense, that aren't are conscious. Um, and there's a duality, as I said before, about disembodiment between mind and body, the body not being essential to being itself. Um, and now, as you can see, there is the post-critical view. I'm not saying all post-critical writers adopt each of these rejections, but these are the set of different ways you can challenge the pre-critical view. You can say, well actually no, the subject isn't authoritative about itself. We don't necessarily believe a subject, we don't take the subject as being the final word about whether or not they have a phobia or some dismantled disorder, or whether or not they actually were in a particular place at a particular time. Memory is fallible. People are irrational. Uh, the subject might be inherently irrational. Um, the subject's identity might be partially constituted by its uh, social environment and its physical environment, and other kinds of environment. Uh, yes, yeah, uh, I get the sense that it's a little bit of Jungian ideas. Jungian, yeah. like Carl Jung. Oh, Carl Jung. Yeah, I would say that uh, his work fits into um, yeah, a critical approach to self, sure. Yeah, but not all of these necessarily uh, are these viewpoints. Yeah. Um, you have to understand the self in terms of its historical and cultural context, and those contexts partially constitute the self. Um, the self can only be understood in terms of the activities in which it engages. It can only be understood if you take seriously the connections between one's self, one's sense of self, and certain bodily features, neuroscience, um, certain abilities to act, um, uh, feelings, other body, etc. Um, the self can, maybe even typically, is unaware of it, all of its properties, and so it isn't transparent. Uh, there are aspects of the self that don't <coughs> conceptualize the world. It might be always uh, interpreting the world, but it might be interpreting a world that isn't the world in a way that isn't easily captured in a proposition, especially one that's linguistically structured. Um, there are unconscious and subconscious, perhaps, aspects to the self that are driving uh, behavior, driving uh, the life of the self in a way that the consciousness can't reveal directly. And rather than forcing a duality between mind and body, the idea is that the self has to be understood as a union of mind and body together, and you can't just factor off one of that, those aspects, a lived body, as I might say. Okay, so that's not. There are two more disputes. The third one that the authors, uh, the editors, uh, use to characterize some of the disputes, some of the sorry issues that are raised in the, the writings that they're concerned with, 
Um, third one is about the nature of knowledge itself. I think you can see, we already saw that a little bit with reason, and you can see how it's going to follow from some of the things we said about the self, that knowledge is going to have to be different. On the previous view, you have knowledge as being representational, uh, about a world that exists independently of the subject, that starts with a given that is conceptual, conceptual, specifiable in language, um, can be redeployed in an arbitrary way. You have a subject that's independent of the world. You have um, knowledge being the, the, the subject of knowledge, the, the one who knows, is independent of that which is known. You also have the things that the, the objects of knowledge, what knowledge is about, are things in themselves, the ding an sich of, um, that's a German correctly, but the ding an sich of uh, Kant, this noumenal realm um, that exists independently of anybody's um, conceptions of it. Uh, knowledge is articulable in language. Anything you know, you have a full grasp of it, and you can control your, your um, knowledge, your reasoning faculties, you can decide what to investigate, what not to investigate. Um, and once again, we have uh, post-critical rejection, or partial rejection at least, of each of these ideas about knowledge. Maybe there are non-representational aspects of knowledge, I already mentioned skills, maybe that's kind of knowledge, but it doesn't represent the world in any traditional sense. Instead of saying the world is independent of the subject, maybe we partially constitute the world, so the objects of investigation are not independent of the investigation itself. I can give examples of each of these. It, would take, it wouldn't be a one hour or two hour lecture, it would be quite a long uh, session, but just what you might have heard, the interaction of the observer and the observed. So some people think the results of quantum mechanics show that there actually is no uh, independent world out there, a uh, uh, world independent of our investigations of it. As soon as we start investigating it, we actually change what it is that that's maybe an example of this rejection of the subject-object divide. Um, rather than starting with um, some uh, given that is unquestionable and is already is, is conceptualized, maybe there's actually a process of interpretation that goes on and you never actually just start with raw data that can't be questioned. Um, actually, it might be that your concepts uh, play a role in determining what comes to you as being obviously given. So you're contributing to your starting point as much as the world is. Um, the subject on this view is seen as part of the realm of what is being reasoned about. And that, that has the result of that is there are some uh, self-referential paradoxes that arise on the, uh, that, that can arise if you don't recognize that uh, the subject is part of the world. Um, rather than saying that there are, once again, we're rejecting the view that uh, there are things in themselves prior to any cognition, rather there's just a series of interpretations. So uh, you, you don't get to the real world in itself by doing physics, you just find another uh, system of signs, uh, system of signifiers that reveal the world in a different way. But if you want to make sense of the, what that uh, enterprise is doing, then you'll use another series of symbols and signs and use those to understand the uh, reference of physics, etc. And that produces a uh, hermeneutic a series, if not a hermeneutic circle. Um, the, there might be, it seems essential to reasoning, uh, sorry, to knowledge and knowing about the world on the um, post 
critical view, that there be some background um, that enables uh, knowledge that can't actually be articulable in terms of any language. So you might be able to articulate large portions of knowledge without be relying on skills and capacities that can't themselves, that constitute knowledge but can't themselves be articulated, in, at least in the traditional sense. Um, you could have a partial grasp of knowledge. It might be that, um, to use one example, um, I might say, um, I know that elm trees are different from birch trees, but my knowledge of that doesn't consist in my ability to go out and say that's an elm and that's a birch. I rely on experts who can tell the difference, or friends, or whatever. And so I can be said to know that elms and birches are different, but it's not that I have a full grasp of that distinction. I just have a partial or defer deferential grasp of the distinction between elm and birches. And finally, um, maybe we have no control over the, uh, the process of how we acquire knowledge, or maybe we have only a partial control over our knowledge acquisition strategies. Um, and we, we don't have, we don't just rationally um, in an independent, objective way, select out the propositions that we want to know, but we're actually guided by uh, other forces that maybe um, don't have any uh, traditional epistemological value. Okay, and then uh, finally, we have a little gap there, so I need to make sure I'm target for the break. Yeah, that was 10 minutes to break back. Um, so the fourth dispute is about method. How do you actually do philosophy itself, given these crises in reason, subject, and knowledge? What are the implications for the method itself? Well, the, the pre-critical view is that philosophy should proceed by primarily by appeals to logic. Um, you should the language of philosophy should be purely literal, uh, with no room for ambiguity, with um, by, by focusing on literal uses of language, uh, uh, it was hoped that clarity and certainty would, would follow. Um, if you want to put it in terms of the uh, ancient Greek distinction between logos and mythos, it's definitely on the logos side, order, structure, um, rationality, as opposed to the imaginative, the fanciful, the divine, and uh, an emphasis on argument. So the emphasis on, is on not just knowing things, but also doing so, establishing knowledge through a procedure that can be revealed to be unquestionable. And it's easy to go through and negate all those. Post-critical view does that and says, well, logic is important, but rhetoric, the techniques of using language to persuade aren't necessarily based on logic. That's also important. And in fact, it's, it, I, this, this actually gives me a good opportunity to bring up an important point about the post-view. It isn't just that the post-critical thinkers are saying, let's do a new philosophy. Let's do a philosophy that's based on rhetoric as much as logic, or not even more. No, they actually are saying, that's how it was done all along. And they didn't realize it about this. It's because they didn't put the self in the world and realized that they were another object of knowledge and philosophy itself was an activity and therefore could be studied by subjects. Um, because they didn't realize that, they didn't, there was a mismatch, a disconnect between the philosopher's view of what was being done in philosophy and what was actually being done. That's what the post-critical 
person might say. They say, actually, we go back and look at all these thinkers who said logic is really the way to proceed, and you look and see that they, that these people would say, they're using all these rhetorical devices, and, and, and the strength of their, the reason why we still uh, pay attention to their writings is not, yeah, it might be, have to do with the structure of their arguments, but it's also to do with how they use language and how they force the reader into um, accepting their conclusion by using uh, subtle, uh, uh, subtle and subliminal appeals to power or authority, writing in a particular kind of language, publishing with a particular kind of publisher, pricing your book this much, using examples that are drawn from bourgeois life rather than drawn from the working man's life, all these kinds of things establishing the philosopher as a scholar and somebody knows better than you and you should listen to him. And it wasn't he, it wasn't him. Um, so the, that would be a way that a post-critical thinker would, would, would approach a text and say, no, we shouldn't just look at the logical structure. That's part of it, but there's so much more going on there, and you'll, you'd be silly to ignore that if you want to really understand the power of these ideas. Similarly, with the idea about the figurative, not only has it been used in philosophy, uh, but perhaps it should be used more. Perhaps we're not using, we're, we're, we're limited in our revelations about, we're limited in our investigations by trying to shoehorn our philosophical contributions into the austere confines of literal language. Instead, we can make great leaps if we use language in a more creative way, and we should write differently now if we want to do post-philosophy. And accordingly, there's an emphasis on the mythos worldview, uh, the mythos uh, aspects of the universe rather than just the, the word-based, uh, uh, order-based, rational-based logos. And um, rather than just always focusing on argument, what about narrative? Narrativity seems to be crucial to our, our identity as selves. It's a fundamental way of relating to the world, telling a story, um, appealing to the particular examples of lived existence, rather than always a detached argument, which is um, just a set of propositions of logical relation. Maybe narrative can be used to achieve philosophical insights to take the reader through a process of, uh, of, of existence that um, an argument is just too impoverished to do. So, on the post view, there's a claim that you won't really understand philosophy or the insights of philosophy until you see that they've been using all along, to some extent, these other aspects of method that don't aren't just the logic and the rule and the argument. Um, I, I, when I made this slide, I, I thought that there might be. I, I always seem. I, I, I feel like uh, sometimes with the post-critical view that it, there's a problem because once you introduce, once you criticize the pre-critical view for not being self-aware enough, there's this self-consciousness that you now are obliged to engage in. You criticize the pre-critical view for not being reflective enough about itself, or about who's doing the reasoning, what is reason anyway, what is not. But then, that means the post-critical philosopher also has to do that. And I, and I think, well, here's an example of maybe where the post-critical philosopher isn't being, um, isn't applying the post-critical view to post-criticality. So, post-critical post view says, look, 
can't really understand philosophy until you recognize all these. And say, wait a minute, I'm going to use your own idea against you. You said there's a lot of our knowledge that isn't conscious, isn't known to the subject, isn't conceptualizable. So maybe I can understand pre-critical philosophy perfectly well without having these concepts. I just understand it on this intuitive, pre-conscious, unarticulable way. And that's just one example. Once you see that move, you can generalize it to everything else. For instance, I said they criticize the pre-critical philosophers for um, uh, not really understanding their own method. Well, um, what's wrong with that? That's the nature of reason. You, you know, if the, the post-critical view is right, then that's the nature of reason anyway. We can't ever truly know everything about ourselves. and ever, We can't have uh, explicit understanding of every aspect of, of, of our intellectual life. So what were the pre-critical philosophers doing wrong? It, it, there's this problem that the post-critical view tends to, in certain circumstances, tends to cancel itself out. And it's, it's, um, it's definitely a, a danger you, you know, that, that needs to be avoided. But I still feel that there are some insights from the post-critical view that, that do avoid that and can be of a constructive contribution uh, to philosophy. So another example is, is relativism. So a typical post-critical view is relativism. And so if you are teaching traditional philosophy, you might have a student say, yeah, but you know that's just relative. How can you uh, how can you you know assert that P implies Q and P together imply Q? Um, that 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 holds true universally. You know maybe it's only true in some cultures. But the student the student who raises relativism is the issue of relativism is is open to the critique. That they just uh, that they just raised themselves. So, for instance, you ask them, okay, so you you believe in relativism, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, is relativism true absolutely, or is it true only relatively? Uh, so, if there's a dilemma for them, because if they say it's true absolutely, then they rejecting relativism. If they say it's true relative, only relative, like in some cultures it's true, but in other cultures it's not true. They say, well, this is a culture in which it's not true. Right now in the classroom. This is we're engaging in logic, and in this situation, you know, so then the student can come back and say, "Oh, you're just trying to force your your um, dialectical logic on me, and forcing me to, you know, you're, you're using your power authority here as a teacher to to force me to reject this insight." You know, so a, a discussion can continue from that point as, as well. That's not the end of the issue, obviously. Uh, otherwise, relativism, if relativism were that simplistic, we wouldn't be talking about it anymore. But but there are, I think there's always a possibility for these, uh, often a possibility in these post-critical views for them to uh, cause problems for themselves, and often I think the post-critical writers don't recognize that, but uh, many of them do. So one last point on this slide. On some of the post-critical views about reason, subject, knowledge, method, um, Progress on the other, well, actually, on some, let me that wrong. On some of the post-critical views about method, progress on the other three disputes that we talked about, um, can, you can make progress on those disputes by, say, applying, for instance, a literary analysis to philosophical texts. So if we go back and don't just analyze Kant or Descartes or 
whatever, in terms of these logical, literal structures, but rather also analyze them in terms of a greater range of uh, tools um, from, drawn from uh, literary analysis in general, look for metaphor, look for certain uh, devices, look for certain um, illusions, then uh, we will actually get more out of those texts and we actually might come to a greater understanding of self than if we just looked at explicit literal content of what we were saying.